Hello and welcome to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Thank you very much indeed for tuning into this episode. Today we are back talking about the MotoGP World Championship, which finally got its season underway last weekend at the Circuit de Jerez Angel Nieto in Andalusia in the south of Spain. And we were treated and reminded as to why MotoGP is one of the most exciting forms of motorsport anywhere on earth um, right now. And we, well, as I say, we were treated to an absolute thriller around the Jerez circuit, with obviously the an incredibly long off-season, uh, nearly eight months since the riders took to the track for the final round of the 2019 season, at Valencia, um, so and I'm not really with a massive amount of of testing in between either. So very much kind of a, a shot in the dark for a lot of the riders and for the teams as well. And don't forget that the temperature uh, in July, in the middle of July in Jerez compared to what it's like at the beginning of May when the race is traditionally held is quite a lot different. The temperatures are far far higher, and the heat particularly was particularly difficult for. Uh, a lot of the riders uh, and teams alike. Obviously, the paddock having to make a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of uh, allowances um, for uh, COVID nineteen restrictions, etc. So all of the paddock wearing uh, wearing face masks as well, and uh, no fans coming to the circuit yet. But hopefully, by the end of the season, that will be able to change. However, although millions of people watching around the world were treated to an absolute cracker of an opening MotoGP race and actually treated to already our first brand new winner of in MotoGP on the very first race of the season. Frenchman Fabio Quartararo and his number 20 Petronas Yamaha M1 machine, the satellite Yamaha, don't forget, not a factory machine, uh, although not the factory team, I should say, it's a factory specification motorcycle, but it's a, an independent team that he rides for. And he, after coming so close so many times in his debut season, don't forget, last year, uh, coming into many last lap battles with uh, Marc Marquez, this time Fabio was able to take the checkered flag and his first win of his MotoGP career and also winning from pole position. Although his start from pole position wasn't quite what he would uh, would have hoped. He actually dropped back to fourth position in the early laps. Um, and uh, at the time, I must be honest, I was worried if he was going to suffer the same issues that Maverick Vinales had on a number of occasions last season when dropping back in the early laps. But very quickly, he made his way back up to the front again. And not only was it Fabio Quartararo's first victory uh, of his MotoGP career, but the, the, remember, still relatively new SRT Patronish Yamaha team that only debuted at the beginning of last season. So it's a completely new team uh, running the two satellite Yamaha machines uh, and a team that was basically built from from scratch obviously with personnel with experience in the paddock but in general it was everything was started up from new and the team were immediately competitive with also their other rider Franco Morbidelli has been incredibly impressive since his move from Mark VDS Honda to Petronas Yamaha last year. 
So, I mean, for a, any MotoGP team, factory or otherwise, to come in and win that quickly, if you look at, for example, KTM, uh, who have been in the championship for four, four years now, um, and they haven't won a race yet, uh, and that's a full factory effort, Um uh, as as well, so the I think the the achievement um, of uh, the SRT Petronas Yamaha team cannot be underestimated, and I'm sure the presence of Wilco Zielenberg, who was the the manager of uh, Jorge Lorenzo's side of the garage uh, in the factory Yamaha team for many many years, and I'm sure Wilco's uh, influence uh, is definitely playing a hold there, because of course. Wilco was uh, in charge of, as I say, in charge of Jorge Lorenzo's team within Yamaha uh, when he won all of his three MotoGP world titles. So there's there's definitely something there, uh, I'm sure. But probably the biggest talking point, uh, unfortunately for poor Fabio and poor SRT Yamaha, was um, Marc Marquez. As, with, as uh, those who have watched Marc Marquez since he came into the World Championship at 19 years old, uh, or actually just turning 20 years old, actually, and back in 2013, uh, he came in and won in his opening season, his debut season in the MotoGP class, and he's actually won six out of seven of the World Championship, MotoGP World Championships that he's taken part in. Quite an extraordinary statistic. But the one thing about Mark is he's never short of, uh, of drama, whether that be the way that he rides the motorcycle how he's able to save what looked like a surefire accident and he's able to pick the bike up somehow and keep the bike on the on the tarmac. It's just an extraordinary thing to watch. And Mark Marquez has not been without the odd controversial moment, as many riders in MotoGP have when um, engaging in wheel-to-wheel combat. And there's been plenty of examples of that, particularly 2015 in Sepang when he locked horns with Valentino Rossi. But Marquez coming back uh, in it didn't qualify on pole, uh, qualified on the front row, and uh, so he had to make his way forward from third position on the grid. And uh, he did so to begin with and began battling with Fabio Quartararo, but Fabio Quartararo was able to hold him off, uh, hold him at bay. Um, But Marquez at turn four, very, very fast left-hander when the riders are getting back on the throttle after the short first sector where it's quite slow speed and they're back on the gas. And it's when you're turning onto the left-hand side of the tyre for the first time in about half a lap because the final corner at Jerez is a tight left-hand hairpin, and then it's basically three right-handers in a row after that. Um, so the left-hand side of the tyre just cools ever so slightly. I wouldn't say the tyre would be cold, and especially not in the temperatures that we had at the weekend, but just sometimes when you have that little bit of a difference in temperature, that can affect the grip as well. And that, and also with the, the temperature of the track being so high, it made the kind of track surface very greasy and slippy. And basically the result was that Marquez went torpedoing off into the gravel, but somehow, and as he was going into the gravel, he had the bike virtually on its side with a knee down and an elbow down and everything, and a shoulder probably as well. And actually, as the bike was anybody else on planet Earth would have had to let go of the bike, and, and that's a crash. But he was able to somehow pick it up on his knee as he was going through the gravel, get it back on going straight again, and then somehow keep the bike upright. Now remember, a MotoGP bike is not meant to go through a gravel trap. It's meant to pretty much stop at that point, and he was having to basically 
motocross style, just gas his way through the gravel and get his way back onto the track, which he managed to do. Quite an extraordinary achievement in itself. And he returned to the track back in 16th position. Now, we've seen Marquez, um, you know, crash before, remount, and then make his way back up the field again. But often he's doing this with a, a damaged motorcycle, of course, if the, the bike's been on the floor. But this time the bike obviously hadn't been damaged because it hadn't been on the floor, and therefore it was at, you know, he was he was at full performance, if you like. And it was just stunning to watch him carve his way back through the field from 16th back to 4th position, coming into the closing stages of the race with just a couple of laps to go. And, uh, well, w what ensued, well, that is... What started, well, what was basically as now, as we know now, only the start of what would be an extraordinary story in MotoGP history because what we've seen in the last week since that accident uh, beggars belief quite honestly and Mark came off at turn 4 and this time he did not save the crash when he asked for the throttle the throttle or the bike said no and particularly the tyre said no and basically flicked him over the handlebars in incredibly violent fashion same corner that his incident that he'd had at the beginning of the race and over the handlebars he went and as he clattered through the through the gravel trap and tumbled like in a somersaulting fashion the bike actually the front wheel of the bike actually clipped him straight on the uh, on the elbow uh, and and fractured his elbow in the, in the process and when when mark got off uh, thankfully was able to to get up and walk away uh, and walked over the other side of the barrier and the camera focused on him and you could see the pain in his eyes and remember these guys and MotoGP riders have got probably the highest pain threshold of any sports people in the world and you could tell he was in serious serious pain so uh, after the race he was um, he was taken up to Barcelona uh, where they conducted a, a, an operation to to fix and basically put a titanium plate in uh, beside his his elbow, which to be honest is just making me shiver at the at the thought of it. But they did suspect that there might have been um, nerve damage uh, at, in that particular area, which would have caused a lot of problems. And it was on his right arm, so they were worried that it was the nerves that were used for opening and closing the throttle on a motorcycle, which of course the throttle grip is on the right hand side of the handlebar. So they were really, really worried that this was going to be potentially... I mean, it was potentially career-ending. It really could have been that bad. Um, but thankfully, there was no nerve damage and a very successful operation. Amazingly, that we are now... Bearing in mind the race is on Sunday. Today's Thursday. Mark Marquez is going to be climbing onto his 300-horsepower RC213V prototype motorcycle on Saturday morning. He's going to skip practice tomorrow. That was, I think that was the deal made with the doctor. Uh, but on Saturday, he's going to get back onto his bike and give it a go. Now, it might be that he's got to pull in, but I, don't, I can't remember a time where Mark Marquez has had to pull in due to injury, and he's had some pretty, pretty bad injuries in his career. Um, so... It, it just, I, I don't quite know where to begin. I had thought about this a lot over the last couple of days. Uh, you know, Mark is uh, he's a six-time Premier Class World Champion, uh, twice in the junior classes, so overall eight, eight championships. Don't forget that this year he has the opportunity to match Valentino Rossi's nine world titles. And I'm sure that will be both playing on the mind of Mark Marquez, but also Valentino Rossi. Uh, as well so I think there's a lot of motivation for Mark to get back to the track and at least try and get some points on the board because of course 
came away from the track on on Sunday with no points at all. So uh, it's certainly been a talking it's certainly been a talking point um, in the paddock this week of a lot of journalists calling out saying that he shouldn't be um, he shouldn't be riding back. And quite honestly, I don't understand how. Uh, speaking as one, I don't understand how a journalist has a better opinion of medicine and uh, the human anatomy than a doctor does, but there you go, that's just my view on it. And I think at the end of the day, the doctor, the doctor's going to know if it's dangerous or not, and they, their job is to say so, and quite honestly, the doctor will be effectively liable if there was anything, any problem arising from the advice given. So, I don't think that the the, I don't buy the he shouldn't be out there riding. At the end of the day, you employ the best one of the you buy you employ the best doctors in the world, as you'll see it in Formula One as well. MotoGP, it's even more important. You get you know you basically employ the best best doctors that you can and trust the advice that they give you. And at the end of the day, this isn't for someone who works in a day to day office job. This is somebody who is engaged in one of the most dangerous professions in the world you know being a motorcycle racer is dangerous and and there's they come into they prepare and they train their body to be able to put up with that with that um kind of uh, that kind of stress so um you have you, you can't help but take your hat off to the bravery and the tenacity of mark marquez to 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 have the guts to get back onto his motorcycle on saturday uh, and go out and do what he does best and do what he's been put on this earth to do is go out and win motorbike races and some people might think that that's really futile but quite honestly I think it's amazing to see people like that who just have an inner strength that normal human beings just couldn't um, couldn't even compute and I'll be honest I'm one of those I don't know how he'd, how he's doing it but um, I'm impressed incredibly impressed nonetheless. While we're on the Marquez family, also one thing that, uh, you know, young Alex Marquez, Mark's younger brother, who of course has joined Mark as uh, his teammate in the Repsol Honda garage this year. And Alex has kind of spent uh, his, uh, he's, he's been very much the Ralph to the Michael Schumacher, if you like, you know. Um, but the difference is, is that Alex has won the World Moto3 World Championship and he has won the Moto2 World Championship. Maybe the difference with Alex compared to Mark Marquez is that Alex definitely takes a good couple of years to bed into a category. We saw it in Moto3, it took him time to get used to that type of motorcycle and then to figure out how to win, and he did so, beating the very best, beating Jack Miller in a straight fight. And then moving to Moto2, which is notoriously a very difficult class to, to come to grips with, and spent a number of years in uh, in the Moto2 class with the Mark VDS team, and eventually last year got the world title so he's, he's won in the moto 3 and the moto 2 and now he's in moto gp and whereas mark marquez well has just been on this amazing meteoric curve this incredibly steep learning curve where he just goes you know he won the one two five cc championship and then the moto 2 uh and then up and then up to moto gp in what seemed just like a blink of an eye um, and into winning the championship in his first year. So Alex Marquez has al- always been kind of unfairly compared to Mark. Um, and for many, Mark Marquez is one of the finest, if not the finest, riders we've ever seen in World Championship motorcycle racing. So Alex, is, um, he had his debut on the uh, Repsol Honda, which if you look back over the last, well, the last five years, 
um, or longer, pretty much. If you look since 2013, since Mark Marquez came to Repsol Honda, he's only had two teammates, Danny Pedrosa and Jorge Lorenzo, who also are some of the finest riders uh, who have ever raced in MotoGP, and that's just a statistical fact. Um, but the obviously Jorge Lorenzo had no wins on the Repsol Honda, and Danny Pedrosa had very, very few once Mark Marquez came onto the scene. And actually, the record of Honda is, if you take Mark Marquez out of the equation, has definitely got a lot worse over the last six or seven years or so. So that is not an easy bike to get on with, and that's been proven by the way it basically it basically chewed up and spat out Jorge Lorenzo in, in in a very unceremonious fashion. It basically ended, that bike ended Jorge Lorenzo's career. He went from, in within six months, winning on a Ducati to finishing last on a Repsol Honda. So it's it's um it's clearly a difficult bike. But young Alex, in his first ever MotoGP race, in uh you know in the very top team in hugely difficult conditions incredibly hot nearly 40 degrees centigrade really 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 hot um and he he got a, he, he got points um he finished and i'll just check my notes here he finished in 12th place uh which you might think oh well so so what he scored four points well Everybody was talking about Brad Binder, the South African, and his debut on the factory KTM, uh, and and impressive so it was. But he came thirteenth. He came behind Alex Marquez, and that's just the fact. And if you look at the the quality of riders who are in front of him, they've all got a heck of a lot more experience, and a lot of them are race are race winners as well. So I think um, for Alex Marquez, I, I think he can be pretty proud of what he's done on his, his, his Repsol Honda debut. Unfortunately, before he even got to turn a wheel in, in racing action on the Repsol Honda, he has already lost his ride in that factory team to make way for Paul Spargro, the KTM rider, who has been uh, who has moved into the Honda 4. And Alex Marquez has had to move sideways to LCR. But we'll get on to talking about the rider market later on. What happened to the doctor? Valentino Rossi, number 46, the nine-time world champion. Well, it not a, not a good start to the season for, for, for Rossi. He's not really on the pace for most of the weekend. You know, the Yamaha machine typically, or and particularly Rossi on the Yamaha, has really struggled at Jerez the last couple of years, particularly in the hot temperatures. They've really struggled with rear tyre life um, and uh, rear tyre grip, uh, which has been a real problem for Rossi specifically, um, Vinales it has hampered him from time to time, but not always. But whereas Rossi, it's more kind of affected him on that. But one thing that was really, really unusual is Valentino Rossi actually had to retire with a mechanical failure. He actually pulled over, but halfway through the race, pulled over on the front straight and had to lean the bike against the wall because basically the engine let go. Um, there was. Uh, no, there was either an engine or electrical, but the, basically the bike just shut off it. And it, it just said, no, nope, I've had enough. And that it could have been the temperature, but the bikes were running that temperature before. But very, very unusual to see uh, a, a, any MotoGP motorcycle right now, but particularly the Yamaha, to fail in any form mechanically. Um, of course, we saw when um, Valentino Rossi was battling with his teammate Jorge Lorenzo uh, in, in 2016, we saw Valentino's engine 
blow up going over um, the the you know, coming through the opening sector at, at Magello. So it's really very unusual. Um, I think before that, the first one he'd had was to, since two thousand and seven. So you know that's three blow ups in about. 13 years so it's it's really really unusual for for that to happen so not a great start for for Rossi's season but for Rossi this season provides a different opportunity it's 99% sure that he will be moving over to the Petronas Yamaha team next year um and what with what might be a farewell season it could be a penultimate <laughs> penultimate season um we, we're not entirely sure at this point and we believe that the only things holding back final announcement of this deal is basically the agreement between him and Fabio Quartararo who he's effectively swapping bikes with and in terms of Fabio Quartararo has a number of team members that he wants to have around him when he goes to the factory team next year and Valentino Rossi of course wants to have his loyal crew Alex Bredgs, um, Brett etc all, all the main guys who you see uh, who have been in Valentino Rossi's garage pretty much since the since he came into the World Championship nearly 20 years ago now. It's amazing to say that, isn't it? Um, so, for Rossi this season, something different. I don't think, even for him, he will be thinking about a championship challenge, to be honest. It's, the, the field is so deep and so strong now that I, I don't think that that, that pace is there um, to, to, to do that. However, that gives Valentino Rossi the opportunity to perhaps identify races where they can work towards and they can try and develop the bike around him for those races and try and identify races where he can have a chance of going for the win. Perhaps maybe even a wet race that's more likely to be a wet race, for example. So I think that that's going to help. I'm trying to make it, you can try and make a bike that's specific to certain types of circuits and just accept that it's not going to be on the pace at others. Um, so whereas when you're running for a championship, you don't necessarily have that luxury. You kind of have to make sure you've got a bike that's fast everywhere if you want to win the championship. So I think for Rossi, that's going to be a really interesting element to see if they take that approach and also coming on to next year, whether uh, that's the approach that you'll have at Petronas Yamaha as well. So, um, Valentino Rossi's teammate, Maverick Vinales, the Spaniard, he came home in second place, if slight, if, you know, relatively distant behind Fabio Carteraro, but I would imagine Maverick Vinales will be pretty happy with his day's work out at, uh, at Jerez at the weekend, because we've seen so many times with Maverick Vinales where he's got off the, you know, he's really struggled in the opening phase of a race, uh, and then faded back, um, um, sorry, my apologies, he really struggled, you know, really faded in the beginning part of the race, and then would charge through the field, and then end up with a not too bad result, but you kind of think, oh, he could have won that race if he'd had a good start, so that's very much been Vinales' problem, is he's not been able to string a kind of whole race together, when he did, he would win by miles, but not often was he able to do that, and I think, He'll be happy with his performance at Jerez because his pace was pretty steady and constant throughout the whole race. And that's that's going to be, I think, a key for Vinales because over one lap, he's probably the fastest rider in the world, actually, right now, to be honest. We see him in free practice and testing being really, really fast when doing a time attack um, run. But having to do those time attack laps or do that fast pace throughout a race, he's not been quite been able to put it together as well as some of his rivals. So I think for Vinales, that's going to be a critical point to, to look out for. 
Another person who really impressed me uh, at the weekend was Jack Miller. Jack Miller came into the MotoGP World Championship in 2015, jumping from Moto3 to MotoGP directly, and also did that without actually winning the Moto3 World title. Of course, he missed out the very last moment to Alex Marquez in 2014. But he made the jump all the way up to the LCR Honda team. And, uh, you know, in the first couple of years, he really, really struggled and um, perhaps didn't keep himself in the best of condition. Uh, maybe partied a little bit too hard, maybe enjoyed the MotoGP rider lifestyle a little bit too much, all that kind of stuff. But instead of letting that, you know, letting that hold him back, he's been able to keep his footing in the paddock and has addressed all those issues, you know, and, and he, he went on, of course, to win that wonderful wet race at, at uh, Assen in 2016 on the Mark VDS Honda, which was notoriously a very, very tricky bike and to, to ride. And since he's, he's moved over to uh, the Ducati, the Pramac Ducati team, well, he's he's been a revelation, to be honest, and he's really been able to learn from many mistakes if he has you'd have the odd race where he would be really good at the start of the race and would then fade back because he'd used too much of the tires energy and life uh, up in the early stages of the race now you're seeing him being much more measured and it was interesting listening to his post-race interview from Sunday after him finishing in fourth place you know he was he basically was he's saying, I didn't really have any major moments, I was riding within myself, and I was just wanting to make sure that my pace was steady throughout the race, and it wasn't um, peaking and troughing, I want to make sure that I had plenty of life in my tyre to to get a good finish at the end when it mattered, and you just had to look at what his uh, teammate Peko Bagnaya uh, did, was basically ran ahead of him, uh, and then fell, and then fell back, so Jack Miller really impressed me, and he and a really strong fourth place, just missing out on the podium. But bearing in mind that Jerez is probably the worst circuit in the in the championship for the Ducati motorcycle, that is very very encouraging for Jack Miller for the rest of the season. It's also encouraging for Andrea Davizioso, who sneaked his typical Andrea Davizioso fashion under the radar relatively you know relatively quiet during the race and gets it in third position as i say not a typical ducati circuit at all there's not really any long straights really where the riders can really open up the the proper power of the ducati its top end power is unmatched by any motorcycle in the championship so there are other circuits where the ducati will be far far more competitive and if you look at the results you know jack miller in fourth Davizioso in third, it's looking good for Ducati. And also remember that Andrea Davizioso, he's in a reportedly pretty bitter contract negotiations with Ducati, um, Ducati factory at the moment because he's obviously been there for, for a long, long time. He's been there for about six or seven, no, eight seasons now actually, uh, and has played a pivotal role in pulling Ducati out of the doldrums. Uh, and got them back to winning races again, very, very nearly winning a championship a couple of seasons ago. So Davizioso is completely, he's been an absolutely integral part and a, 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 a focusing point of bringing Ducati back to the winner's circle and bringing them back to the front of the MotoGP World Championship. And quite honestly, bringing them success 
equal to, uh, with the exception of, of the championship, but equal to in terms of wins than, than, than Casey Stoner did. So, you know, Andrea De Vizioso has given the factory a lot and clearly he, you know, as a professional writer, he wants to be rewarded for that loyalty and, and his skill uh, on the bike, which is clearly not diminished at all. But there's, as always is the case, there's a little bit of back and forward. And of course, we can only speculate what's going on behind closed doors. But reportedly, it is a little bit of a stalemate right now. But a result like that, especially in the way that MotoGP contracts seem to be working now, whereas basically everything is so focused through the prism of that particular race or that particular fortnight. It seems to just be an absolute live moving target of whose value is where. It moves up and down, like honestly, like the stock market. Uh, it's amazing how one rider can come in or out of favour in such a short space of time. And they're, all of their credentials and all of their, their experience sometimes can just get flung out the window. And sometimes then you also see some really left field calls of people being plucked out of Moto2 and into the MotoGP class. And sometimes it works brilliantly and other times it doesn't work at all. So Fabio Quartararo would be a great example. Fabio Quartararo really did flatter to deceive in Moto3 and Moto2. And to be honest, even in his final year of Moto2, yes, he did have two wins, but his championship result was pretty poor. Uh, And when he got the, I think a lot of people, myself included, when he got the Petronas Yamaha ride, we're going, really? He's going to, that's, that's a strange call. Uh, and I was delighted to, to eat my hat on that one because he just, I think he proved everybody wrong just by, by, by his performances last year and, of course, goes on to win the first round of 2020. So it just shows you that <laughs> the paddock and the people spotting the talent can be uh, can just see things, they know things that we don't sitting on the sidelines. Now, for the other manufacturers, well, KTM, the Austrian manufacturer, they've made a brilliant step with their bike, clearly. KTM, is they've been in the championship for a few years now, and they really struggle to get their bike um, to be a bit more friendly to ride. Of course, Johan Zarco signed for KTM and didn't even last his first season, um, and yeah, was kind of chewed up and, and spat out as well. Um, so it's not been a particularly easy bike for uh, KTM's riders to get on with, and it's required the kind of, well, the kind of hard-headedness and the, and the real hard riding style of Paul Espargaro to really kind of ride the wheels off the thing to try and get some results out of it. But quite clearly, they've made some big, big steps, and I'm sure uh, that they would admit that this uh, this extended off-season has been really good for them to really get down to the nitty-gritty of the engineering of the motorcycle, make them, bear in mind, they're, you know, they're, they've got, obviously, it's their own engine, it's their own chassis, it's everything, everything's done in-house, effectively, so they've been able to really get down to the nitty-gritty with their race team. Remember, KTM, in any other form of bike racing that they've gone into, they've won. They're the mo- so successful in the Dakar, motocross things like that but road racing has been relatively elusive for them um, up to now with MotoGP but I think they're just starting to turn the corner they really were very impressive at the weekend with you know, Paul Espargaro uh, unfortunately the Paul Espargaro has been poached from them they're going to lose Paul Espargaro at the end of the year just as things are coming good he's getting taken off to Repsol Honda uh, and you know he brought the bike home in sixth place uh, at the weekend in a very very tough race very very competitive race and fast pace also uh, also their 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 brand new star um, straight into the factory team from Moto2 Brad Binder the South African 
um, who, well, what can you say about, about Brad Binder? Really impressive pace uh, straight out of the gate. You know, bear in mind, this is his first MotoGP appearance and immediately um, impressing everyone up and down the paddock and rightly so and couldn't happen to a nicer guy than 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 young brad binder and a guy with a young guy with a wise head on his shoulders the other person you could say that about is miguel Oliveira, who is on the K, uh, the tech three uh, ktm which is in theory is the satellite team uh, ktm but it, of any manufacturer the blend between a factory team like the official all singing all dancing team and the independent satellite team those lines are very much blurred with ktm you can tell that that is four bikes working together rather than two bikes and two bikes if you know what i mean so you know for i think ktm they'd be really happy to have two bikes in the uh two bikes in the top 10 uh and also to have uh, to, to have brad binder scoring points on his his debut so who knows what they've done to that bike over the the extended off season out in their their base in austria but whatever they've done they've really made they've obviously improved the rideability of the bike because we see this so many times when rookies come into MotoGP and if they're on bikes like sometimes the ducati or particularly the honda um and we've seen it with ktm as well they really do struggle because the bikes are just so aggressive and they, they can't get used to it and if you see rookies come onto the Yamaha, which is renowned for being a really comfy and friendly motorcycle in relative terms, uh, you've seen rookies get on really well with that motorcycle. It's interesting watching that contrast. And when you've got two rookies uh, in uh, Lekuona, who was doing really well before he crashed, unfortunately, but Lekuona, Oliveira is relatively new to MotoGP, of course, and then, of course, you've got the complete rookie in Binder, and they're all performing really well uh, on this bike that indicates that they've really improved the rideability of the motorcycle and what that also means is that they have then opened up to more choice of riders who actually want to ride the bike and also who will go fast on it as well so um, really really impressed as well with, with, with what KTM have been able to do over the off season. For one of other MotoGP's other, um, uh, well, really, they've been around for for about oh, they'd be six seasons now for Suzuki since they returned to the MotoGP World Championship, and they've again uh, under the the guardianship of uh, Davide Brivio, who of course was part of the Yamaha setup in the Fiat Yamaha days, in the glory days of Valentino Rossi when he was clocking up championships for fun and Davide uh, Brivio has, has been instrumental into leading that Suzuki team and they've got a, you know, they've got two young riders Alex Rins and Joanne Mir who are both really impressing uh, on the Suzuki GSX-R R, R, I think it's actually triple R <laughs> how many R's can you fit in that in that car in that bike sorry um and they've got a Suzuki this year. Thank goodness somebody's had the guts to change their paint scheme. Of course, the Yamaha looks the same. The Honda looks identical to the, any of the other previous years. Ducati's not really much different. But Suzuki have put together a beautiful paint scheme for their 100th anniversary, which has got lovely blue and kind of chrome silver effect on it. It's a beautiful motorcycle. And according to the riders and according to a lot of the other competitor riders who have to follow the bike on track sometimes, they all say that the Suzuki looks like the sweetest handling motorcycle anywhere in the championship, even more than the Yamaha. Apparently, it's super nimble, really easy to turn, uh, and and is very much a really strong package. Unfortunately, 
we haven't really been able to see what Suzuki have got uh, for the 2020 season because at the end of qualifying, Alex Rins unfortunately crashed on suspected oil or fluid uh, coming into the back part of the circuit. A very fast corner and dislocated his shoulder. Joanne Mir, he crashed in the race, so no points at all from either Suzuki Ryder for the opening race of the season, which is a bit of a disaster, really, especially when they're wanting to celebrate their 100th anniversary in style. However, I think they will, they'll be back, and I think Suzuki are going to be strong this year. I think they've brought a good package, uh, and particularly at some of the tighter, twistier circuits, I think they're going to be really hard um, to, to stay on terms with. Alex Rins dislocated his shoulder as I said due to the the accident but already he's had it had his operation had a bit of physio and he's going to be riding this weekend as well just again absolutely in, in, in incredible the the toughness and the tenacity of these riders speaking of toughness and tenacity well they don't come any more determined than Cal Crutchlow our our beloved Cal Crutchlow of Great Britain who uh, Cal, it's a good job that Cal's tough because he's had a career where he's had a lot of crashes, and a lot of um, you know, a lot of races where he's been challenging and 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 has ended up has ended up throwing the motorcycle down the road, and that's because he just he just doesn't give up. He just it will not take no for an answer, and that's why Cal's got to the victory victory lane on a number of occasions, uh, all on satellite uh, machinery, um, because he just he can just grit, grit his teeth and get on with it, and he gets the very maximum out of his ability. Unfortunately, riding that line does mean that if you step over it, uh, it's going to hurt, and that's certainly been the case for, for Cal. And Cal, during the weekend, actually hurt, had a fractured scaphoid on his, his left wrist, which thankfully is for if it was his right wrist it would be much worse because of course your right wrist is twisting the throttle and operating the front brake. For the left wrist you're using the clutch on the left, the left the lever on the handlebar. That's the you would use the clutch off the start. But after that, really, nowadays with a seamless seamless shift gearbox where the riders changing gear with their left foot. Um, the, the the really your left wrist is not as under pressure anywhere near as under pressure as the right wrist but even so I mean if you fractured your scaphoid uh, he's had an operation uh, and uh, it's fixed and he's going to ride this weekend as well just less than seven days afterwards it I, I, I've watched more of GP for a long time and I have to say I've not seen this kind of widespread level of we've seen this kind of widespread injury before but not widespread level of riders getting operations particularly right now with the pressure on you know the global healthcare system it's just extraordinary it just shows you the, how you know not only are these riders talented the people the surgeons that can piece them back together again so quickly I I I I I, I bow to their um <laughs> I bow to their greatness I, I really really do so let's have, before we finish, let's have a quick summary about the rider market and what we can expect next season in MotoGP. It's crazy to be talking about next season, but of course, although we've only just had our first round, we are at the end of July. And what has happened in the last few seasons in MotoGP is the rider market has just got earlier and earlier and earlier when riders are getting signed up. And a lot of the time, the paddocks arrive to Qatar, and before they've even gone on track the press conference on the Thursday, a new rider is announced for the following season. So uh, it's the MotoGP world has changed. Um, whether it changed for the better or not in that perspective, I'm not entirely sure, but 
Time will tell for that. So, as we said, Paul Spargro, the Spaniard, and now MotoGP um, stalwart now, of course, 2012, sorry, 2013 Moto2 World Champion, uh, came into MotoGP in 2014 with Tech 3 before moving to KTM Racing a couple of years later. So, Paul Spargro will be off to the factory Honda team, Repsol Honda, alongside Mark Marquez. Now, I have to say, I'm incredibly puzzled by this decision from Honda, particularly, because Clearly, Mark Marquez has been the only guy to extract any kind of results uh, out of the Honda Repsol Honda motorcycle over the well, pretty much since he came into the championship, and um, he's been the standout guy. And obviously, Honda have had to fend off a lot of approaches from every other manufacturer in the paddock. Who we know that Ducati have come to Marquez with enormous amounts of money to try and get him to, to come over, but he's stayed loyal to Honda, but I think it's come at a price to, to Honda, and rightly so, he's, he's, you know, he's the rider who's winning the championships, and that come at you, you know, for the team, if they want the best rider, you have to pay for it. Um, but the, you know, Mark Marquez and Paul Spargro clashed many times in their junior careers, they really do not like each other. Um, they raced hard and raced very aggressively with one another in both junior categories. Um, so they don't get on. And also bearing in mind that Honda, I felt that Honda done the perfect thing to keep their star man happy by he doesn't get more doesn't get better than giving his little brother a golden ride in the in the factory Honda team. Uh, I can imagine that must have made. That must have made Alex, Mark and the whole family very, very happy and very, very comfortable uh, at Honda. Um, and But to move Alex, uh, Mark's little brother, across to the satellite team, so to a smaller, to the lesser team, it's not the fact, you, you know, you always want to be in the factory team. Getting moved across to the independent satellite team and then bringing in, to be honest, your pretty much your worst enemy from your junior junior career is a bizarre decision, I must be honest, it is really, really bizarre. Um, perhaps they're preparing for life after Mark, maybe they are, I don't know, but uh, it's, um, you know, Mark hasn't had a problem seeing off his teammates up to now, he, he able to, he was on top of Danny Pedrosa pretty quickly, and, and also Jorge Lorenzo didn't cause him a problem either, so... Uh, I don't, I don't envisage that changing very much. I think Paul will get closer. I think he will, he, the bike, will, he won't be intimidated by the bike. But uh, I still don't think he'll, he'll come in and, and challenge Mark all too regularly. However, I think the pol, the polit, the, the politics behind the scenes uh, are odd. Uh, they really are odd, and I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of that. And I suspect that there will be fireworks between the two Spaniards. So unfortunately, that kind of musical chairs is often the case in the rider market. Alex Marquez moving across to the LCR uh, private Honda team alongside Takaki Nakagami, the Japanese rider. That means that Cal Crutchlow, who's been a loyal servant to Honda for five or six years now, doing a lot of their testing work, doing a lot of the donkey work in, out on track as well, testing um, the various parts and what have you, and has won races, of course, as well, uh, for LCR. Uh, unfortunately, that's him out of a ride, uh, and that means he's now on the lookout. Uh, the paddock at the moment tipping him to sign for Aprilia um, alongside Alicia Spargaro, but to be honest, again, I'd, I, for Aprilia, I didn't think that would be very smart, because Aprilia have actually already got a really good 
uh, rider in their ranks right now who's finally been able to get himself in the race seat, which is which is Bradley Smith. And Bradley is a really, really sensible rider, really, really, really fast uh, and uh, very, very hardworking as well. And alongside um, Alicia Spargro, I think the combination of the kind of fieriness and the pace of this of Alicia Spargro and this kind of steady Eddie of Bradley Smith, I think that combination is, is perfect and just what Aprilia need to keep developing their motorcycle as it goes along. But we'll see. Um, Cal Crutchlow has openly said that he's no, he's got no interest in going to the Honda World Superbike team. Although it looks like the Honda World Superbike looks like it's a pretty special piece of kit, so maybe he might change his mind there. I don't know. Um, but at the moment, the net is kind of closing, and the opportunities are closing. There is also the rumor that he might return to Ducati and replace Andrea De Vizioso. But again, I don't think that would be awfully smart for. Ducati to swap Davizioso out for Cal Crutchlow. As we said, Valentino Rossi, he is 99% signed to go across to the Petronas uh, Sepang Racing Team Yamaha satellite team. So this will be the first time that we've seen Valentino Rossi on a satellite motorcycle since two th- uh, since his first year in the championship, since 2000. So it's uh, yeah, it's hard hard to say that, isn't it? Um, so that was when he was with the the Nastro Azuro team before he moved across to the um, the Repsol factory team when he was with Honda. That's a hard, that's a long time ago. So uh, this is diff- This is a really interesting one for the sport. It's fantastic because of course Malaysia is one of the most fanatical countries. Uh, into for for MotoGP, they absolutely love MotoGP in Malaysia, and to be honest, most of Southeast Asia is absolutely MotoGP daft. So, for obviously Petronas is the state-owned oil company in uh, Malaysia, and um, you know the Petronas Towers, the beautiful landmark in Kuala Lumpur. Um, the for Valentino Rossi, who is still by a long way the biggest blockbuster name in the sport, uh, he's one of the biggest names in motorsport. Full stop. Not just MotoGP. For him to be going to ride for a Malaysian team, the Sepang Racing Team Petronas, it's a match made in heaven for the uh, promoters of the sport in that part of the world. And that is, I think, to have Valentino Rossi there, I think whatever needs to happen to make sure that deal gets over the line, I think Dorna, I'm sure they are, I'm sure Dorna need to make sure that that, that, that deal happens because from a promotional standpoint, it's it's perfect. What that also means is, as we said, Fabio Quartararo, he will move from the Petronas team, the satellite team, up to the factory Yamaha team, the monster team. So, and that will, well, we'll need to wait and see if that will be the making or breaking of him. Judging by his race win uh, with on for the first time on full factory machinery at the weekend, I suspect it, it might be the making of him. Also, it was confirmed in the off-season that Danilo Petrucci will be leaving the factory Ducati team uh, and moving across to the Tech 3 satellite KTM. So a wee bit of a step back for Danilo Petrucci, but the last little while of his Ducati career has been tricky. But don't forget, this is again, this is the short memory of MotoGP. Don't forget, at Mugello last year, just over a year ago, he put together one of the most amazing finishes to a race and one of the most amazing race victories uh, at his home race in Mugello. I'll always remember when he passed Marquez and um, and Andrea De Vizioso at once, passed the two of them all in one go. It was extraordinary to watch. So uh, 
look out for Pujuti. He's uh, he's he's got the pace under there when he needs it. So, the championship order then, run through it quickly before we finish. Fabio Quartararo sitting on the top with his Yamaha, 25 points. Vinales with it on his Yamaha, 20 points. Davizioso and Jack Miller uh, in third and fourth place on their Ducatis. Franco Morbidelli on the Yamaha in fifth. Paul Spargaro, the top KTM in sixth. Francesco Bagnaia on the Pramac Ducati seventh. Uh, Oliveira on the KTM uh, in eighth. Danilo Petrucci on the Ducati ninth. Takaka Nakagami uh, in tenth. Uh, top Honda, yeah, top Honda in tenth. That t- tells a story. Eleventh uh, Zarco on the um, Aventia Ducati. Not a bad start to the season for the Frenchman. Twelfth Alex Marquez on his debut uh, for Repsol Honda. Very impressive. Thirteenth uh, Brad Binder. Fourteenth uh, Tito Matt for Aventia Ducati. And rounding out the top fifteen, scoring uh, his first point. Uh, of the season Bradley Smith on the Aprilia so well done to Brad getting the bike over the line and scoring uh, a vital championship point so that is lots to talk about uh, in the, this opening race it was in it just it, it was one of those MotoGP races where you just did not know what was going to happen next and that is just the brilliant thing about uh about MotoGP. Now, if you're a big MotoGP fan and this is your first episode of the the Peter McKay Motorsport Podcast, firstly, thank you so much for tuning into the show. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you're a MotoGP fan, I'm sure you'll remember the wonderful Nick Harris, who was the voice of MotoGP for many, many years, nearly 20 years, and he retired a couple of years ago. And during the lockdown, I... I I I plucked up the courage to send him an email and ask if he would come on to uh, the podcast so I could interview him and and, and get him to tell his story for our listeners. And inc- what a gentleman uh, Nick Harris was! I got a, a reply almost instantly saying that he would be delighted to take part and just to let him know whenever I'd like to do it, and he'd be available. And that's what we did. We we, we set a date in the diary, and Nick was just in top form telling all these amazing stories of his time on the road and I have to say I'm I'm glad it was an, an audio based interview because I had the most childish grin on my face the whole time because Nick as you can imagine with me as an aspiring commentator Nick is right up there with the all-time greats of commentary and he just his 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 voice tone is just so distinctive and 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 his voice is much missed from the airwaves in MotoGP so if you're a MotoGP fan uh, and even better if you haven't heard of Nick definitely go and listen to it and you'll hear a man who's uh, who's heard and, and seen it all uh, in the sport so do check that out uh, and would love to know what you think. You can follow me on Instagram, which is at Peter Mackay Motorsport. My Twitter is at Mackay Podcast. And uh, you can go on to Facebook, the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast, and get in touch with me there as well. Also on my website, PeterMackayMotorsport.com, you'll see my full portfolio of uh, of commentary that I do. Uh, also, um, some written pieces that I do uh, as well. And you can get in touch with me through the website there as well. I'd be delighted to hear what you think of the show and also uh, after having a listen to uh, the programme with Nick because that was a real privilege for me to get to do that. So that's all we've got time for today on the Peter McKay Motorsport Podcast. 
We've got another race coming up this weekend. We're back to Jerez again uh, for the double header, the Andalusian GP this time. Uh, and next week we will be back with all of the all of the the follow up from what I'm sure will be another great contest. Thanks for listening. <laughs>